a delight tonight to have so many visitors. I know that as you were coming in tonight, I saw so many faces that were new, and I'm assuming many of you are here to um, be a part of the youth activity. We'll be after services, and we want you to know you're welcome here. I want you to come back and to worship with us any time that you have the opportunity. The first Sunday night of each month is set aside for answering questions, and through the period of time, people will hand me questions, often written on a little piece of paper. Uh, I don't necessarily want anyone's name on them, because what's important is the question, and more importantly is the Bible answer. And I want to talk for just a moment about the passage that Brother Ken read for us. And if you will notice in that passage, they did not understand what he was saying, but if you look at the last part of verse 32, they were afraid to ask him. If I were to ask each of you, has there ever been a time that the teacher or someone said something and you didn't understand it? But you wouldn't raise your hand to ask the question and you were afraid to answer. And the reason why is we say, I'm afraid they're going to think that was a dumb question. And the truth is, there are no dumb questions when one is seeking the truth. When a person is trying to find out what God's Word teaches on a particular subject. We ought to be like the Ethiopian eunuch as Philip was trying to teach him. and He said, of whom does this speak? The prophet or someone else? How can I unless someone guides me or shows me? We need to be the kind of people who learn to ask questions. And just like Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7, he says, Ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and it will be opened unto you. Or as Jesus said in John 7 and verse 17, If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether I speak of God or whether I speak of myself. You can listen you can open your Bible, you can evaluate what is said, and then you can say, that is the truth, or I think I need a little more explanation than that. We talked about each month the type of questions that are asked. Some of them are textual. People will often call me on the phone and say, Tony, I'm studying the Bible. This is my daily Bible reading, and I want to know what this passage is saying. And uh, if you want it to be a, one that's answered more in depth, I'll be glad to include it. If you have a question that arises, write it on the back of one of the visitor's cards and hand it to me on the way out. Other questions, though, are topical. That is, they deal with a specific topic that's addressed in the Bible. One of our questions tonight falls in that category. And then others are practical Sometimes you and I are just dealing with difficulties in our life and we want to know why, why this is happening. We want to know what we should do. And that's what one of our questions will be tonight as well. So let us begin as we first address the first question. And this is a question that I have been asked I don't know how many times. And uh, Brother Gus Nichols used to be asked questions quite frequently. He would do that. And he would say, well, you know, some questions just won't stay answered. So this is one of the ones that uh, we're frequently asked. And the question that was submitted to me was, does the Holy Spirit dwell 
and Christians? Well, I can give you the real short answer. Yes. And uh, I thought that might be a good answer and to say, okay, next question. But I don't think that's what the person who asked the question was intending. If you go to Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, we read, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Obviously, the answer to that question is, either if you are a Christian, you have his Spirit, or you do not. Romans 8 verse 11 says, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. That's the answer. But I believe the person who's asking the question is not really asking the question if the Holy Spirit dwells in us, but how does the Holy Spirit dwell in us? And the reason being is because sometimes we hear an answer and we're not really attaching point A to point B and there's different things that people mean when they say, does the Spirit dwell within you? Some, for instance, believe the Holy Spirit dwells in us and enables us, and I I italicize the word enables so that you could understand that's the emphasis upon it, providing guidance, protection, comfort, as if the Holy Spirit is somehow inside of me providing some control of the choices that I make, providing some sort of enabling that allows me to be able to say no to sin. Is that what the Bible teaches? You see, there's a problem. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 and verse 16. And I could spend a lot more time in 1 Corinthians, but here's a real problem if you have that view. Here's what Paul said. And I, brethren, cannot speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, as unto babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for you are not able to receive it, or for until now you are not able to receive it, and even now you are not able. For you are still carnal, for where there are envy and strife and divisions among you, are you not carnal? and behaving like mere men. Now when you drop down to verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If the Spirit of God is in me in a very personal and direct way and He is guiding my choices and He is preventing me from doing certain things that I ought not do, why did He not prevent the Corinthians from the envy and the strife and the division. Why did the Spirit not also, if it is enabling man to have knowledge and understanding, why were they still as babes in Christ? Why after even the feeding that Paul provided them, did they not grow? So you say, well, maybe that's not the correct answer. There's another alternative. 
And that is that the Holy Spirit is representatively dwelling by the means of his influence through the instrument of his word. Let me draw your attention to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17. Paul is giving the Christian armor. And he gets down and he talks about the sword of the Spirit. That's this instrument. That's his tool. That's his weapon. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's the way the Spirit cuts to the heart of man. Acts chapter 2, verses 36 and 37. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. You see, the word of God is what is capable of reaching down and dwelling in the hearts of men. Now, lest you think I'm somehow misapplying that, I want you to go with me to the book of John, which often speaks about God dwelling in man. And I want to go to John 14 and then primarily to John chapter 17. When you go to John 14 in verse 10, Jesus said, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, does the works. Now, when you read that passage, and Jesus is saying, the Father dwells in me, are you thinking that the Spirit of the Father is somehow possessing the body of the Son? You say, well, no, no, no. It's the influence of the Father is in Jesus, the Son. But now let's go to John 17. And Jesus is praying a prayer to the Father. And he's trying to express to the Father the unity that they enjoy together and the kind of unity he wants the believers to enjoy. He said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe on me through their word. That they all may be one, Father, as you are in me. And I in you, that they also may be one in us, and that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me, and I have loved them as you have loved me. I want you to notice the way Jesus puts it here. He says, the Father in me. Now I want you to look particularly at what you see at the end of verse 21. That they also may be one in us. And then you look at verse 23. I in them, you in me. Do you see the idea of the influence of one another? God in us, and us in God. When I get to the book of Ephesians, Paul said in verse 5, he says, Whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge. So it's something 
that could be read, that could be understood. And then when he gets to verse 16, he says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Oh, he's talking about strengthening that inner man. Well, how does the spirit do that to me? Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ dwells in our hearts, but it's through faith. Now, I could go on and spend a lot more time with that, but I want to point out to you that just like Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, Paul said the Philippians were in his heart. He said in Philippians 1 and verse 7, and as much, or he said, just as right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. So as we start thinking about how does the Holy Spirit dwell in us, he dwells in us the same way the Son dwells in us. He dwells in us the same way the Father dwells in us, through the influence that he has over us by his word. And so that's the way that he he does dwell in us. But not in this direct, not in this miraculous, not in an enabling way that provides for us some guidance that we do not have from his word. That leads me to my second question. This is a great question. I don't remember who gave me this, uh, but I will tell you this is a great question. How should I handle frustration in my life? Are there any passages that can help? And when you start thinking about questions like that, that's somebody who's trying to do the right thing. They want to be able to do things that are pleasing to God, and yet they know there's difficulties there. Let me begin, first of all, by asking, what is frustration? The dictionary says it's the feeling of being upset or annoyed, especially because of the inability to change or achieve something. I'd like to ask you a question. How many of you have been frustrated this past week? Don't raise your hands, but I'd say most of us would have to say, I've been there. And when you start looking at your frustration, you have to identify where it comes from and I'd suggest to you, usually it comes from people. Maybe your family, maybe your friends, maybe your co-workers. If you're a teacher, it may be your students. If you're a student, it may be your teacher. You see, frustration comes from other people who annoy you, who upset you. And you can't change it. You can't do anything about it. Sometimes it comes from problems. Sometimes the doctor tells us, you are sick and the sickness you have is terminal. You're not going to live. Sometimes you go through a procedure, you go through a treatment, and it doesn't work. And you can't make it better. Sometimes it's a loss of a job. Sometimes it's a major failure in your life. Sometimes they come from plans. 
things don't work out or things fall through. You've got this idea of what you want to accomplish in life. You want to do this. You know, like James 4. Come now, you say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a city, buy and sell and make a profit. You go, you buy, you sell, you lose. You see, frustrations come to us from all kinds of sources. Could I illustrate that from the Bible? Well, sure. In fact, I could spend a lot longer than I'm going to. Think about some of the people in the Bible who really must have been frustrated. Think about Job for just a moment. Imagine here's a man who's got everything going in the right direction. He's got a good family. He's got plenty of money. He's got wealth. It seems like everything's going in the right direction. And all of a sudden Satan comes along and his life now becomes awful. He's lost his family. He's lost his wealth. Now he's lost his health. I want you to listen to a couple of verses that I think provide an insight into his frustration. He said, my days are past. My purposes are broken off. Even the thoughts of my heart. You get frustrated when you feel like there is no bright day in front of you. Nothing's ever going to get any better. Chapter 19, verse 8. He has fenced up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness in my paths. You know what you would call verse 8? Between, being between a rock and a hard place. Things are not going. And he says, all that I see in front of me, I, the only choices I have look dark in front of me. That's the way life looks sometimes. For some of you women, you may be a young lady, you may have desired to have a child. And if you go and you study the life of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 9 through 17, I'm not going to be able to take time to read all of this, but I want you to notice, it says, Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Eli the priest was sitting by the seat at the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. Now I'm going to summarize from here forward. She's in bitterness of soul. She's praying to the Lord. She's weeping in anguish. She's frustrated. She doesn't have a child. And here she is. She's praying a prayer. Her lips are moving, but her voice is not being spoken. She's saying a private prayer. And she promises God, if you'll just give me a child, I'll give him back to you. When Eli sees that, he thinks she's drunk. And he tells, put away your wine from you. And she responds, I'm not a wicked woman. I'm just expressing the anguish of my soul. I feel for barren women. I feel for those who are unable to conceive, who want a child desperately. But you see, here's a woman whose life is frustrating. What about Elijah? 
When you go to 1 Kings 19, you see Elijah, after his great success in chapter 18 on the top of Mount Carmel, how that the prophets of Baal have been defeated in that contest. You get to the very first part of chapter 19, and Jezebel is ready to execute him. And she said, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow at this time. And what happens? He runs in fear. In fact, he runs all the way down to Mount Sinai to Horeb. That's a long way. You see in verses 12 through 14, He comes out, he's got a mantle wrapped around his face. You can imagine, you can visualize this. And God asks him why he's there. And he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I'm alone left. And they seek to take my life. He's frustrated. He's tried to do the right thing. And yet, that ungodly woman Jezebel is trying to kill him. I think of Ezra and Nehemiah together, even though their lives are separated some by time and definitely by purpose. It was Ezra's job to lead the children of Israel back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And when they got back and they laid the foundation of it and they started building up the temple and what happened is there's a group of people there who are not Israelites who are not real happy that they can't participate. And Ezra 4 verse 5 says they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. Do you ever feel like in life that you're trying to do something and there's somebody over there just trying to make your life more difficult? That's what Ezra had. You jump to the time of Nehemiah, which is later. Nehemiah's return to rebuild the walls. Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem didn't like it. So what they said, we're going to attack They conspired to come together and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Have you ever tried to do something worthwhile and good? And there's people saying, you know what we can do? We can make their life a little bit more difficult. Start saying, wow, there's a lot of frustration in the Bible. There is. Israel also was frustrated. During the time of Haggai, which is sort of in the same line as Ezra, Ezra had told the people, let's get busy. God sent the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to try to stir them up to get them going. And he said, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat and do not have enough. You drink and are not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put in a bag with holes. I can ask the question, how many of you are frustrated to look at your check and say, well, I made a good salary this week. And then by the time you've left Walmart, you say, where's all my money? You're frustrated. Well, you've identified your frustrations. 
You've seen it illustrated in the lives of some people. The question asked, are there any Bible passages which will help me with this? So let me offer some biblical principles to deal with this. Number one, realize many things are beyond your control and accept it. That's the hardest thing in the world to do is to realize I can't change everything. I can remember when I was a senior in high school first reading what was called the serenity prayer. And it says, God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now that's really a a struggle for us sometimes is to recognize there's things we can't change and grant me the ability to accept it. Realize that even though you may not be able to see it right now, many of your situations will improve with time. Be patient. Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through 11 speaks about those who have been martyred, those souls who were crying out under the altar, asking God, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And God's answer was, wait a little while until all of this is completed. Oh, I can tell you how many times I've been frustrated Galatians 6 and verse 9 said, Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. You keep on doing what is right, I can guarantee you that life will be better, if not here, then eternity. Psalm 27 verse 13, I would have lost heart unless I believed that I would see goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Number three, really hard to accept. Realize that many times we create our own frustrations. We sometimes are our own worst enemy. Someone makes my life difficult. Do I ever step back and ask, why are they doing that? Could it be that I have said something or I've done something? You know, Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Do not deceive. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For he that sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He that sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. What if I am mean? What if I am angry? What if I'm always creating trouble for everybody else? Guess what's going to come back to you? What if I treat people well? Matthew 7, 12, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You don't want people frustrating you, then don't frustrate them. Don't make their life more difficult. Sometimes we allow ourselves to be vexed with this world and all of its pursuits. I find myself looking and saying sometimes, is it worth it? 
to be frustrated over this purpose or that purpose or allow myself to be overly concerned. And I'm always driven back to a great book of the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon said just several times, and I'm just going to just run through these real quickly. Indeed, all is vanity and grasping for wind. Verse 17 of chapter 1. I perceive that this is also grasping for wind. Chapter 2, verse 17. For all of this is vanity and grasping for wind. Chapter 4, verse 4. This is also is vanity and grasping for wind. Ecclesiastes 5, 7. For in the multitude of dreams and many words there is also vanity, but fear God. Oh, make that your choice in life. You see, we ought to be focusing on eternity and spiritual things. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, If then you were raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. All the question to end with tonight is, what must I do to be saved? That is the significant question. That's a question that the Philippian jailer asked in Acts 16 and verse 30. The answer to that question is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 16, verse 31. The answer to that question is, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. You see, tonight, if you want to become a child of God, you want to be saved, you come in faith, you come repenting, you come confessing your faith, and being baptized. And then, sometimes our frustration is we're living lives in rebellion to God. The way of the transgressor is hard. You can come tonight and you can remove one of the great frustrations in your life, and that is looking at the sin that is there. If you need to respond, would you come as together we stand and sing?